Saludos everybody, welcome back to Seminary for the rest of us. I'm Sabrina Reyes-Peters. Uh, so if you missed last month, uh, I released a special episode where it's just me talking uh, and also reading some excerpts from a couple of German theologians that I like, uh, namely Dorothy Swalla and Helmut Goldbitzer. So if that sounds interesting to you, give it a whirl. Uh, but today I am introducing an episode I've had in the hopper uh, for a while and I'm very happy to finally release it. Uh, it's an introductory conversation on patristic universalism, also known as universal reconciliation. I wanted to touch on this because if you're not in Eastern Orthodox circles and or uh, you're not too familiar uh, with early church fathers, namely um, Origen, uh, who is the main focus here, uh, you may not know that uh, there have been some interpretations of the scriptures that do not uh, require hell to be eternal conscious torment or um, uh, some sort of uh, annihilation uh, as opposed to eternal conscious torment or everybody gets saved no matter what uh, universalism. So I got to chat with Ambrose Andriano about some of his work on patristic universalism and he answered some of my burning questions. Ambrose is an Eastern Orthodox mystic and aspiring lay theologian who specializes in the writings of Origen of Alexandria. He co-hosted the Patristics podcast on Ancient Faith Radio and created the website Black Lion Academy where he published biblical commentary as well as philosophical and theological meditations. Um, if you want to keep digging into patristic universalism after listening, uh, check out the show notes for the paper we reference because uh, you actually can't access it on uh, Black Lion Academy anymore. But don't worry, I've got you. Um, and also I'll list a couple of other uh, sources uh, recommended by Ambrose. Uh, so happy listening and stay warm. Uh, bienvenidos. Welcome to the podcast, Ambrose. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, sure appreciate you. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk tonight about patristic universalism. And actually, before I read this essay that you wrote, uh, which I'll be referencing throughout the conversation uh, here and there, I actually didn't know like there was a differentiation between uh, patrist, what you call patristic universalism mm -hmm. and say um, Bardian, I think. Yeah, Bardian sure. uh, universalism. <laughs> I just thought, oh, universalism, they're kind of like all basically the same thing. So I'm really excited <laughs> to, I'm really excited uh, for what um, you have to share. Um, but first, uh, for introduction's sake, uh, can you share with us one serious thing we should know about you and one non-serious thing we should know about you. Sure. Um, so for serious, I'd say that I am kind of a, an, an aspiring mystical theologian trying to bring back Origenian exegesis. So like more, more of an allegorical take on scripture. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's been largely lost over time. 
for one reason or another. And you don't really see too much of that today. And it's extremely powerful. So, and, and it's really what, what gets me really excited about scripture. And so it's a real shame that like, there's this overemphasis on like historical critical method and like, mm-hmm. you know, talking, talking until you're blue in the face about, you know, with some like historical context or, you know, what it meant to the original audience and, and all of that, which is all fine. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm really more interested in the, uh, the mystical side of things and, and really impacting the hearer in a profound way. So that's kind of like, that's kind of like where I'm at. And uh, unserious, I'd say I I like to, uh, I enjoy making extremely niche patristics memes that get people laughing. So (laughs) they probably wouldn't make me laugh because I had no idea. Like I have no idea when it comes (laughs) to patristics. Um, Last week I talked to uh, someone about uh, Thomas Aquinas, and now I've taken a oh, step cool. back in time and then going further. Very cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but thanks for sharing. Um, and you also sure. have a online platform that uh, I'll let you talk about more towards the end if you'd like. Sure. Um, that's where you share most of your writings and, and projects and on origins on origin and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's get started. Um, So you wrote this really, really what I thought thorough essay. Um, I think it had, I I counted them actually, because I was numbering them as I read. I think Uh you actually made 12, or you brought up 12 points that uh, people, or that you usually hear, I think, um, Mm -hmm. that people bring to universalism or that are like framed as objections or yeah. or misconceptions that they have. Um, and in an ideal world, um, I would ask you about all of them, <laughs> but we don't have time. <laughs> um, so I was wondering to start us off, if you could explain more of what uh, you call patristic universalism, like what is it exactly? And what are the main proof texts that people usually use for that? Sure. Um, so I would say patristic universalism is the, uh, the ancient mystical interpretation of eschatology that is primarily founded in Paul's epistles, as well as, uh, a Pauline reading of various Old Testament passages. So I'll list kind of a bunch of them. So one of them is Isaiah 45, 23, which is uh, restated in Romans 14, 11, as well as Philippians 2, 10 through 11, which says how every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Um, there is 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 28 in particular, but really that whole chapter 15 there is extremely important. And that's, that's where it says how Christ must reign until all enemies are put under his feet, that God may be all in all. Uh, Origen here makes it abundantly clear that the subjection 
to the father uh, cannot be one that's accomplished by force because that would mean that there are those who are unwilling to submit to God, which of course means that the dominion of death is not actually vanquished. So in other words, every, every knee must be bowing by will and not because God made them bow. So this is really important for Origen to emphasize, and he, uh, he wants to emphasize it so much that he does it twice in the same paragraph, and that's in uh, <clears throat> On First Principles 1 to 10. Um, there's also 1 Corinthians 3.15, which is, uh, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But if he himself but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. So we have this image of being saved, not as a means to escape fire, but through it, uh, the person being salvaged in the burning of their works. Then you have Malachi 3.2, which says, uh, who, who may abide in the day of his coming and who shall stand up when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. And here again, we have this image of God as both the blacksmith who forges and the, and the forge that refines. And then we have Hebrews 12, 29, which says God is a consuming fire, again with the same theme. Then we have 1 John 4, 7, God is love, which is the fundamental nature of what that fire is. Then Job 23.10, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's more refinery themes. You have Song of Songs 8.7, which says, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it, which plays on the unquenchable fire theme of uh, the, the, the fire of unfailing love being an unquenchable fire. And then you have First uh, John 2.2, 2. he is the perpetuator propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but also for the sins of the whole world which has this universality to it and then uh i have lastly here second uh, peter 3 9 how god is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance which is related to ezekiel 18 23 and 33 11 which repeatedly says i desire not the death of the wicked and so on so, contrary to what many people assume, the Origenian Universalists are arguably more reliant upon Scripture than their opponents, because even the definitions and themes of their understanding of eschatology comes from the Bible itself. So, for example, like people will say, you know, how can anyone be a Universalist? The Bible clearly says hell is eternal. Mm -hmm. You know, to which universalists would respond, you know, and how do you define the word eternal? Because if one supposes that eternal simply means absolute never-endingness, then this is not actually how the Bible defines it. And Origen points in his commentary on Romans to Exodus 21, 5 through 6, where it says, concerning the cultural tradition among the Hebrews, quote, and he will be your slave eternally, unquote. He also goes on to reference Ecclesiastes 1.4, which mentions the earth standing eternally 
and so on. So it's clear that like none of these passages are meant to suggest like act like instances of absolute ending endlessness, um, which is why the word is not as clear as we might have been inclined to think. Hmm. And we need to take origin seriously here if we claim to be followers of scripture, because scripture itself doesn't define eternal as a duration which is absolutely and unambiguously unending. So these are just some examples of uh, the exegetical rigor of the Origenian Universalists. And of course, people can check out my essay that you mentioned uh, titled Patristic Universalism to learn more about this. Yeah, uh, I highly recommend folks go and read that after um, listening to our conversation so they can get more of like the fuller picture because uh, there are a lot of objections that people bring to universalism. Um, so when you're talking about, when we're talking about patristic universalism, uh, universal uh, restoration, which is the word that you use um, instead of salvation, there really seems to be like this emphasis on like um, the fire, like the purification of the, of the fire. Mm-hmm. And then the immensity of God's love. Um, So I'm wondering, okay, so if I were talking to an evangelical Christian, for example, or Mm -hmm. even me, like 10 years ago, I would go, oh, like someone dies. And then if they're not quote unquote saved, then they go to hell if they're they're saved, like they go to be with God. if someone were to ask you a question like that, what happens to someone when they die? What would you say? Um, so the afterlife is pretty mysterious. Um, so I'm not sure that there is a non-speculative answer to this, regardless <laughs> of uh, what, you know, whatever eschatological position one decides to hold. Since scripture doesn't give us details and timelines for how all this plays out. But uh, that said, Origen does speculate that it is possible for there to be multiple future ages of purgation, depending on the demographic in question. So obviously, those who are most holy in this life will be among the first enter blessedness, since there would be very little purging necessary and uh, their sins will be forgiven sin can be purged in this age through spirit-led humility and therefore they are forgiven in the next age because they are forgiven in this age however there is also a sin in this age that will not be forgiven in the next age and therefore necessarily requires purgation in the next age And then even beyond this, there's even that sin that will not be forgiven in this age nor the age to come, but must be purged beyond even unto unseen ages, which is like Matthew 12, 32 there. This kind of like progressive purgation is what Origen has in mind until all are perfected and God is all in all. The, The analogy I like to give people is... Imagine God is sitting on a throne, the throne of a, like a giant flying castle in the sky. And the castle 
is surrounded by a dual vortex. These two massive cyclones, which represents the passage through two baptisms. The outer cyclone is a tornado of water and the inner cyclone is a tornado of fire. I'm talking like category five hurricane style, massive. Mm. Now this is incredibly scary. And God draws all mankind to himself, like a gravitational pull through the fire into a loving embrace with himself. People are pulled at different velocities, depending on the weight of sin. And people experience different levels of torment as they pass through the fire, depending on how much chaff you have accumulated in this life. Some will be like the three youths in the furnace that we read about in Daniel 3. Mm-hmm. Others are so broken and unprepared for this that they, they will think that God is literally Satan and their process will be prolonged. But by the end, in some unseen future, that very last rational creature is going to come through that wall of fire, transfigured and glistening with a divine light like gold. This is my own metaphorical conception of this universalist understanding of hell as the divine fire of heaven. The cosmos itself will become like the burning bush being set ablaze in the divine energies of God, because this is simply what happens when God manifests. Therefore, hell is not some you know distant place away from God. Hell is God, hmm. experienced by those who are unprepared for the fated encounter. So that's kind of like my uh, my conception of the afterlife. I think that is different from anything else I've ever heard, uh, mostly because up until several years ago, I was, uh, for lack of a better term, an evangelical and uh, was deathly afraid of hell. And that's like a different conversation for a different time. But Mm -hmm. I'm curious, uh, how and why did you become a universalist? I actually used to be an evangelical too, so I totally get it. Um, and I I didn't conclusively land on the universalist side until very recently. Like I'm talking about this month recently. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, I've been investigating this topic of eschatology for about 10 years. So it's been a very long auditing wow. process of trying my best to uh, sift through all the various positions and arguments. and. Uh, the three main ones being what I would call infernalism, universalism, and annihilationism. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of like the big three you hear about. Yeah. Um, I never took. I I never took the more modern interpretation of universalism seriously, um, one that denies any kind of hell altogether, mainly because that was just kind of like a wholesale a wholesale denial of scripture. Hmm. Like um, like most people, I began as an infernalist, believing that God is quite you know quite literally and actively going to torment all the bad guys forever with a near literal fire that cannot be put out. Um, eventually, I began to investigate other perspectives more seriously. I never landed in the annihilationism camp because to me that was like. Um, you know those like iOS software updates 
that uh, fix, <laughs> fixes the previous bugs and then creates new ones, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, it's bad to say that God torments people forever because that makes God morally at fault for having a punishment far too excessive compared to the crime committed. So let's instead affirm that the life of the soul is contingent upon its own willingness to be in union with God, and therefore souls annihilate themselves of their own volition. In other words, a literal spiritual suicide. Yeah. And so like, so here's the problem with this. Um, God is, rent, is thus rendered powerless to save those who are so morally and intellectually ill that they willingly choose annihilation over God. And God does not care enough to step in and do anything about this. Not only that, but it's also a denial of the ancient Christian dogma regarding the resurrection of the dead. Because in that paradigm, a soul can only logically be raised from the dead if it is united to the resurrected Christ by will, not mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. And it's the, it's the will that is the source of life's contingency. Um, but the, you know, the Nicene Creed says, uh, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And, this, right. and that's, that's what this is talking about. But um, scripture says in John 5, 29 and Daniel 12, 2, that even the wicked are resurrected and so on. So, so this kind of had too many problems for me. <clears throat> uh, very much in uh, an out of the frying pan and into the fire scenario. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> when I critically inquired into the implications of infernalism, all sorts of moral issues came up. So number one, you have like the punishment that far exceeds the crime because finite sin cannot warrant infinite punishment. And mm -hmm. This makes God unjust. So number two, you have Christ. Um, you know, you have God created everyone who was fated for hell, knowing that they would end up burning in hell for eternity as he knit them in the womb which makes God unloving and does not actually care about mankind in any unconditional sense. And number three, um, if the way is narrow, that leads to life. And, and if this means that most people are going to end up in hell forever, then uh, Satan got the better of God for causing him to destroy the majority of his own creatures, which means God is not omnipotent. Number four, if uh, people must be tormented in hell forever because sin makes God angry and, you know, he's obligated to do this, then, uh, then God is subject to passions and is therefore not immutable. And number five, you have if the duration of death, whether the physical sense or the spiritual sense, is equal to the duration of life, then life cannot logically be said to defeat death because both are without end. And uh, lastly, number six, it must be said that um, it must be said to be impossible that I or any human being have more compassion for God's creatures than God, because I have um, I have compassion despite my ignorance of that person who God knew since before they were a little baby in the womb. And if a fool like me can have compassion for evil people and desire them and de desire to see them restored rather than destroyed, 
God's God's desire can only far exceed my own. Therefore, under the infernalist paradigm, God is depicted as being unjust, unloving, mutable, powerless, and lacking compassion. If Christ, who is love incarnate, is to be the standard and the quote-unquote icon of the invisible God, as scripture declares, then this this depiction of God can only be heresy. It is for reasons like these that proved to be too much of a moral obstacle to overcome. Um, So I had to put away, I I had to put way too much effort into making even just a minor observable distinction between God and Satan. Hmm. So a few years ago, I decided to do a deep dive into Origins Corpus and read everything that has been translated into English. And at this point, I'm about 14 works in. And when I started, I was intentional that I wanted to thoroughly investigate Origins exegetical logic particularly concerning universalism, so I could understand why he, someone who is so brilliant and knowledgeable, could possibly land where he landed. I knew I had to be misunderstanding something because Mm -hmm. it just doesn't add up that all these brilliant thinkers who knew the scriptures better than I do and in the original language could affirm something that appeared to me to be so obviously false. Yeah. (laughs) And years later, it's precisely Origen's exegetical logic and uh, his you know, philosophical inquiry into the text, as well as his care to think of God as God ought to be thought of, that convinced me that this was, uh, this was the most sublime interpretation of eschatology. So really, you were comparing all of the t- um, quote-unquote tenets of uh, infernalism to how the scripture depicts God um, as far as as far as uh, God's attributes and God's character. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, uh, it, it really comes down to like comparing the implications of what universe what uh, infernalism asserts and comparing those implications to the nature of god as revealed in christ yeah. and those two things you know are at odds with each other mm-hmm. yeah um logically speaking i think that's the direction that i have been going in kind of like as mm-hmm. i think about it and as, as i read stuff uh here and there so i have a real appreciation <laughs> for someone like you who has a dedication to like really deep dive and like uh, study really get into it. Um, so we have been talking about uh, patristic universalism, and at the very beginning, I mentioned uh, Bardian universalism, which is not the topic we're going to discuss here. Obviously, that's a another podcast. Um, but some folks, I think, get confused between universalism and pluralism. Would you say that that's a fair assessment of some folks that you've encountered in your conversations? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. Yeah, so how would you explain the difference between plural, excuse me, pluralism and patristic mm-hmm. universalism? Yeah, so 
so pluralism as as it's typically conceived as i understand it um coming coming towards me from other people is uh simply a kind of like relativism that says you know it doesn't matter what you believe because we're all going to be saved in the end anyway mm-hmm. um however <clears throat> universalists aren't relativists and uh at least not Originian universalists and uh, Originian universalists still believe that some beliefs and actions are holy and others are highly destructive and will be purged in the age to come with hellfire. (laughs) (laughs) So this will be highly tormenting for all involved because the act of restoration feels like destruction Mm. to those who have corrupted themselves. Think about surgery with the option with uh, without the option of anesthesia, right? Yeah. One is tormented by the surgeon who tries to heal them with who who tries to heal them by wounding with all kinds of incisions. Mm-hmm. Um, hell is even worse than this. Like nothing could be more awful. So who among rational people would say that's totally fine? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> do whatever I want since I'll be restored in the end. Yeah. So like this is nonsensical. Like, <clears throat> which is why like none of the origin universalists have been anything other than completely sober-minded morally. Yeah. And universalists also believe that everyone will be saved through the person of Christ in particular. So it's not exactly like a pluralistic thing, if, even even though the good in other cultures and religions can be certainly affirmed, you know, where, where good can be found. I think of like uh, St. Justin Martyr, who says the, the seeds of the Logos are, are scattered throughout all of creation. You know, mm-hmm. like there are seeds of Christ planted everywhere. And so, yeah, so it's not exactly relativistic or, or anything like that. But I I understand why people go there. Yeah, (laughs) I think uh, pluralism is probably the first thing that I thought of when I first started uh, encountering universalism um, Mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Uh, So you outlined 12 uh, counterpoints or objections that people bring to the idea of uh, patristic universalism and one of them uh, that you mentioned was this concept of um, a free will or uh, like people saying, oh, like God can't po- possibly be forcing uh, everybody to be saved like against their will. So therefore, this means that uh, universalism is taking away people's free will. I think that's yeah. that out of all of them, that kind of stuck out to me. Um probably because of our immediate context, right? Uh, In the United States, uh, people tend to prize uh, liberty and things like free will. Uh, So how would you address that? (laughs) I know you already addressed it in your essay a little, but could you um, flesh it out uh, for folks? Sure. Um, Yeah, I I agree that the the libertarian uh, individualism thing is a pretty prevalent today it's kind of a mess um so if we take my other analogy about hell being like surgery which by the way is straight out of origin and 
particularly here, St. Gregory of Nyssa, who follows him, also gives this surgery metaphor. Um, if we grant this, then we need to re-examine the, the argument from libertarian free will. So <clears throat> does it make sense for somebody to be like, this brain surgeon who is removing the tumor from my brain is infringing on my free will to be inhibited by my tumor? This, of course, is idiotic. Like, free, free will for the Eastern mystics was not the ability to do whatever irrational thing you want. Free will was to be a slave to the good when one is able to perceive the good as good. Freedom can't be defined by being free to will the good and the bad in equal measure, because otherwise this means that God is not truly free, simply because the nature of God is fundamentally good and cannot sin. What happens, <clears throat> what happens for us is that we desire the evil because we think it is some form of good that will make us happy or whatever. True freedom is to be like God, a slave to virtue, rendered incapable of choosing anything contrary to love. The libertarian who thinks like this is not, as they are led to believe, someone who has truly attained the heights of freedom. Rather, they're one who descended into the depths of slavery. However, in spite of all of this, I need to also point out that the libertarians are not even as free as they think they are anyway. <laughs> That's true. Like, does anyone, does anyone decide their birth parents? <laughs> How about the economic status of their family? Or what about the, you know, the options as to what food their families can afford and what jobs they have or their genetics, their natural gifts, their genetic illnesses, uh, what religion they were raised in? All of these things they have no control over, but nonetheless influence so much of their beliefs and choices. This freedom the libertarian imagines to have is already an illusion. However, even if I grant them this, it still changes nothing because universalism does not coerce anyone into the kingdom against their will. The universalist conception of hell is not the cosmic equivalent of waterboarding a false confession of faith out of somebody. On the contrary, it allows people to see the good for the good that it is instead of what they imagine it to be. So that's kind of like what I would say about the libertarian stuff. Cool, uh, so I'm thinking about what you were saying about like the different ages um, mm -hmm. of purgatory. And I'm thinking back to your essay, if I remember correctly, but you uh, kind of tied this in. It's like uh, someone doesn't necessarily like then have to uh, decide that they were wrong or that they believe in God, like after the first round of, of purgatory. So they aren't really being forced in that scenario to do anything. Uh, did mm -hmm. I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so what about evangelism then? So like what <laughs> I, I feel like this question comes up a lot um, mm -hmm. and people say, well, what's the point of like telling people about Jesus or like uh, going around and like uh, preaching the good news if everyone's going to go 
you know, if everyone's going to go through this fire and then like eventually be restored, like what's the point? <laughs> what would you say to them? So, so to this, I would say, you know, what's, what's the point of brushing your teeth if the dentist can always fix it? <laughs> you know, the answer is you do what you have to do. So when the appointed time comes, inevitably comes, you don't have a billion cavities, hours of painful surgery, and then have to sell your house to cover the bill, right? Yeah. Um, even if everyone is ultimately restored in some distant age, this doesn't also mean everyone will pass through the fire of God's love and truth without experiencing torment. On the contrary, we need to let people know the teachings of Christ concerning our souls, that we have the necessary wisdom and humility to be prepared for his return. Luke 8, 17 says, Nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known. Who you really are will be revealed to everyone. If, and, and if you're not prepared for this, it's going to be an emotional hellfire. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I'm not talking that that person we all pretend to be when we log on social media and, you know, when the cameras are rolling or whatever. I'm talking about all those things we hide deep within us, every thought we think, every action we take, and the ripple effect those actions have and, and like, what they've caused in the world, you know, all of this is essentially filmed and logged into our soul as if our souls are connected to the same cloud or shared drive. All of this is going to come out one, one day and we're all going to be exposed. For many, this exposure, this exposure of the Satan within us and the realization of all the damage we've caused and all like the regrets and all of that, though ultimately necessary for our restoration, is simultaneously going to be experienced as the worst hell of all. This is why evangelism is important, not to proselytize people to convert them to a particular denomination or, or something like this, but uh, to tell people about Christ and his teachings, uh, which are able to heal the soul. And here I must emphasize the distinction between salvation and restoration, like you mentioned before, because salvation is typically thought of as as um, as being this. So, salvation is is salvation from experiencing God as hell. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, restoration is being ontologically restored through the obliterating of everything you think you are. Mm-hmm, right. And and so that's kind of the distinction there. And this is a dreadful day. Like this is not something to look forward to. <laughs> nope. Um so so that's to me like th- like that's why it's not it's not like antagonistic to evangelism. Like you still need evangelism. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um sure. so Oh, we're coming up on um, my time block, um, unfortunately. But do you sure. want to tell people where to find this essay that we keep referring to and like your other writings and stuff? Sure. Yeah, if you go to um, blacklionacademy.com, it, the essay is called Patristic Universalism. 
and uh this site is kind of like a, a collective blog it's kind of dedicated to um it's, it's dedicated to patristics theology generally and uh, mysticism and that's kind of like the uh my concentrations right now and and yeah so if you're interested in that kind of content you can check it out and i would highly recommend um people who are curious like me to go and read this essay uh, because it seriously addresses like almost uh almost all of the these like counterpoints that people bring to um thinking about universalism um, I'm sure there are more, but I thought <laughs> thought it was pretty pretty thorough. Um, so, okay, so Black Lion Academy. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how would they do go about doing that? You can find me on Twitter, and my my handle is at Ambrose Andriano. Cool. Um, and so if someone wanted to go uh, beyond Black Lion Academy, uh, I'm sorry, this is a little bit off the cuff, so it's okay if you don't necessarily have an answer, but uh, do you have any other sources that you would recommend for folks um, starting um, kind of like at a lay uh, level? Um, for universalism or for something else? for uh, patristic universalism for mysticism um uh scrolling through black lion academy those are the two two things that i kind of picked up like uh patristics yeah. uh, origin things like that just generally yeah i would just jump into the fathers <laughs> pick up uh pick up whatever theologian you you would you think you would enjoy and read some commentary. I like um, uh, Catholic University of America Press has a great Fathers of the Church series. And they, it's all like scholarly works. And uh, like, I would direct people to Origins homilies. They're, they're pretty user friendly. Okay, cool. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of footnotes and all that. So uh, yeah, that's what I would recommend. Jump right in. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, uh, thanks so much uh, for your time. Um, I hope folks get a lot out of this episode. I think there's a lot of food for thought here. Uh, and uh, have a great evening. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Seminary for the rest of us. Uh, you can send me any email. And when I say me, I mean Sabrina, of course. Uh, send an email at seminary.show at gmail.com and uh, find uh, find us on the socials, uh, Seminary Show. Um, if you're on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a rating um, and even a review. That would be lovely. It's quick, easy, and it's free. It helps boost um, this little podcast uh, visibility. Thank you so much for your support. <laughs>